one to ask for me and my house. Thanks for joining us in this time of discipleship in our homes and around our tables. We're going to continue on in our study in Philippians, which we have entitled, Finding Joy in Every Season. So the first question is, when have you experienced working with a team toward a common goal? Was unity important, important to accomplishing this goal? You know, I know a lot of us at home, uh, we have known the thrill of competing together on a team. I know a lot of people in our church, Lauren, love soccer, right? And the names of teams such as Manchester United or DC United, uh, those soccer club names, they indicate one of their highest values Mm. is unity. So they make the claim to be united. But we also know that, you know, if we watch a lot of professional sports and uh, we can also know that behavior on and off the sports field doesn't always uphold such a name. Um, and we also know it's plain to everyone that unless a sporting team is, in fact, working in unity, it's unlikely they're going to succeed. Mm. In our study today in Philippians 1, to chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is calling the Philippians to unity, uh, but not just any unity, a focused unity, uh, a unity he describes in detail. It's going to enlist our whole beings, our mind, emotion, motivations, actions. Lawrence, this is so important, isn't it, that the church be united? It is. You know, the church is weakening and fractured in so many different places, yet the Lord calls each of us to play a part in our own church to work towards unity and not against it, so that he might be glorified and we might actually be the witness we're called to be in our community. So in Paul's call to unity today, we're going to see some great pictures of what it means to be the church. We know the church is not a service. It has services. Mm. We know the church is not a building. It may have a building or meet in one, but the church is a people, and it's a people forged together by the cross of Christ, who now live uh, live at a, a focused unity that's prescribed by Christ and exemplified and empowered by Christ. So as we look at this today, let's ask the Lord to align our hearts with what we see Paul begins in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that phrase um, in verse 27a, uh, it says, conduct yourselves. Uh, that verb is built on the noun uh, polis. A lot of people will probably recognize that polis means city. Uh, and what Paul is really getting at here is this idea of, of um, you know, discharging your duties as a citizen. Yeah, we are to act as a citizen worthy of the gospel. And he says only, I just want one thing from you. And I I truly just want you to act as a citizen worthy of the gospel. And this is not saying in in any sense that they should earn, that their salvation is earned with a worthy life. No, it's implied, right, that the gospel has already changed them. So it's not that they're trying to earn acceptance, but because of their acceptance in Christ, Now, therefore, you know, go in and live this out. Exactly. No one in this life or the next will be worthy of the gospel in that sense. The gospel is good news about someone else's worth and work. So we're to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine. This is the first imperative in this gospel-centered book that uh, with our behavior, we are to show our beliefs. Our, Our lives will preach the doctrine that we believe And so obedience doesn't earn salvation, but it does prove it. And Hebrews says that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And so we are are bought with a price, and we are to honor the Lord in how we conduct ourselves. Yeah, this is a bit of a play on words with Paul. Um, He's saying what really matters is that you behave as citizens, Mm -hmm. but he's really meaning citizens of heaven, 
citizens of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And this play on words, it would have really struck a chord with the Philippians because their citizenship meant something to them, right? Um, yeah, when you look at the history of, um, of how Philippi came to be, you know, in, in 42 BC, the, army, the armies of Octavian and Antony overthrew the armies of Brutus and Cassius, and they were so successful and so victorious that they gave the soldiers a military colony, which was Philippi. So they gave the people Roman citizenship, and these people were proud to be Philippians. They were proud for the courageous men that took their city and proud for the honor that was won for them. So they were proud for the, the status that was purchased for them. So to say Polytuus de Philippians would have caught their attention, not as citizens of Philippi, but as citizens of the gospel, it would have turned their focus. Um, Paul is saying, you have a different warrior. You have a different king, uh, a king who fought the powers of this dark world and won, and that he fought for us and bought for us a new citizenship and a freedom and a new status, and that we have a permanent city in heaven. And and a family, and we are to live to honor him and to honor the gospel. So we have a much higher citizenship, mm-hmm. no matter you know what country you're from and how proud you may be of where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Christian, we have a higher citizenship, higher privilege, higher responsibility. And so Paul is saying, live, live your life. Let mm-hmm. your conduct reflect your true citizenship. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really what he's getting at is our conduct, mm-hmm. uh, that it should affect our whole life. Because of what the gospel has done for us, it has an effect on our whole lives. I I think of, you know, men, if you're listening, I think of us guys, how we might struggle with our speech and our words, our kind words. Um, But let the gospel affect that. Uh, Ladies, um, you know, maybe this time of year, as the sun's coming out, you know, how uh, maybe I shouldn't be the one talking about this, but, you know, how we dress, let the gospel affect um, that we're that we're modest. Uh, let it be worthy of the gospel. Uh, I, I read this week that somebody once asked Gandhi. They asked him, "What is the greatest hindrance to the Christian mission in India?" And do you know what his response was? He said, "Christians." And that kind of stings to hear that. And we don't want that to be the response of the world. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is saying, "Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel." And hidden in that as well is the sense of consistency. In the middle of verse 27, he says, So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of this kind of conduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's saying whether I'm here or not here, let this be true. Mm-hmm. Now, I can, As a parent, I can think of maybe nothing more that I would hope for my children. Mm-hmm. That whether I'm around or not around, mm-hmm. if they go off to college or wherever they are, mm-hmm. that that you know, may, may, their, may their lives be consistent mm-hmm. with the gospel, that I don't have to be there watching mm-hmm. every move. That would bring me so much joy. And so um, this is what Paul's getting at. And he's calling for us to have a courageous unity, to live as citizens of a higher kingdom. And really, as he's getting into this, he's talking about the courage that we'll need because we're going to be facing some opposition mm-hmm. to live out our citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so Paul says there in verse seven, 27, he says that, uh, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And here we have the first image that Paul wants to, well, the second image. The first was citizens. Mm-hmm. Now we have a second image that Paul is giving us. And this is actually one of military language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reflecting on this a lot this week. I love the military imagery. It reminds me of a quote that the Christian life is not a playground, 
but it is a battlefield. It is a war zone. Uh, this imagery of standing firm reminds me of Ephesians 6, where we are to put on the armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we will be able to stand firm. Not if the day of evil comes, but when. And we are in this war against the spiritual forces of darkness. So here is what we're up against. We have an openly permissive society renouncing their Christian roots. They're embracing cultural values, which can be seen in the mockery of the sanctity of marriage and a mockery of the sanctity of life. We have fewer and fewer restrictions on drugs. Many churches are but one generation short of potential extinction. So it's no wonder the enemy goes after our young people with such vigilance. We are to stand firm, and we cannot stand firm alone. We must stand firm in our doctrine to not be moved, and we must stand firm in our integrity, no compromise with sin and error. Uh, we will be under tremendous attack, and we need to stand, and we need to stand together to resist the temptations of the enemy. Uh, and we can't stand alone, like I'm saying, Brent, we'll be taken down if we try to do this battle alone, right? Yeah, and I, I don't know of like an army of one person that's <laughs> yeah. ever successful. Yeah, we need our brothers and sisters to help us stand. And if we don't stand against the temptations that come in our life, then we're going to be of no advantage to strive forward in the offensive position in the next verse. So we must conquer the sin and darkness in our own hearts. You know, a decade ago, I was walking with a young woman through a time of bondage in her life. And do you know what freed her? It was first confessing to someone. AA says you're only as sick as your secrets. Uh, when you confess to a trusted friend or a mentor, whatever has a hold on you loses its power. And then having someone help her to stand, to pray for her, to encourage her daily. Uh, then when she saw the beauty of the gospel, the verse that strengthened us or her was the first verse that we studied today. It was live a life worthy of the gospel to which she was brought to tears because she realized all Jesus had done for her. So she was delivered. So we, we need each other in this battle to overcome our own battles so that we can finally battle together. Right. So the Philippians, they were being attacked for being, um, you know, for believing in Christ as King. And this is why Paul urges them that they're in a war and they need one another. Paul also gives us another image though. He says in verse 27, uh, that, uh, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This striving now, um, gives us a second idea. And this is the idea of uh, an athlete. That's the root word. That's mm -hmm. where we get the word athlete from. Mm -hmm. How does this passage encourage us to be teammates? Yeah, I love when the Bible gives examples of Christians being like athletes. You know, I had the opportunity to work with athletes at my university, which was a, a Pac-10 school that took their athletics pretty seriously. And uh, in the strength and conditioning gym where I served, I saw intensity and I saw focus. They had a common goal to win, and because of it, that really motivated them to spur each other on. They cheered each other on. They weren't just thinking of themselves and getting their own workouts done. They knew the stronger that their brother was, the stronger their team could be. And we are all teammates and want to have that same mindset. To see our brothers and sisters' growth, we want to cheer them on with our hearts and our minds united with the same mission, the external advancement of the gospel. You know, we, we want to see more and more lives transformed by the gospel. And if we don't take our goals seriously, if we value entertainment and comfort and friends and activities more, then our lives will have very little impact for eternity. Right. So uh, I love this striving side by side. Mm -hmm. I, know, I know that football did not exist in Paul's day. I understand that. 
but it really does give me that picture of football, uh, of, of everybody lining up together and pushing hard to go forward and to advance the ball. And that's what, we, that's what Paul's calling us to, to advance the gospel. And we look in verse 27 again, 27b, here is the goal. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And it is the faith. Mm-hmm. There's a definite article there. It's not just any faith. This is the faith that's been passed down uh, by the apostles in, in here in our Bibles in the Word of God. Um, this is what we're. This is what we're to be united about: is uh, working together as 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 soldiers, as as a team, to advance the gospel, to move mm-hmm. it forward. And the reality is, when we do this, there will be opposition. Mm-hmm. And that really is what Paul, the context that Paul's giving us in verses twenty-seven to thirty. We need a unity in the face of opposition. There will be an external uh, pushback that, that we get. And so um, as we come to verse 28, Paul says to not be frightened by this, um, that as we're out there laboring for Christ, speaking the word of Christ, the faith of the gospel, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Uh, there are opponents. And uh, this is not just lost people in general, not just unbelievers in general, but opponents are unrighteous people who push back against your stand for Christ, who push back against the message of Christ. Um, we're going to experience that. We're going to experience being avoided, ridiculed, mocked, isolated, ignored, neglected, overlooked, maybe even passed by in a job, cursed, questioned, mistreated, slandered, um, and in other places, persecuted and imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, don't be frightened. Don't be alarmed. And the image there is of a horse. You know, we've seen, you know, when the horse kind of kicks back and pulls back and, mm-hmm. and makes that sound, uh, Paul's saying, you don't have to do that. Hmm. It will, you know, you, they, there will be opponents, but don't be frightened like that. And then Paul really gives us reasons why that's the case. He says, um, don't be affright, frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. This is a sign with two sides to it. When opposition comes against the church for the sake of the gospel, there is a sign to unbelievers, the, the, the opponents, of their destruction. There's a warning. When they're pushing back, when they're aggressive against the gospel, there's a warning that they need repentance, hmm. that they need God's grace. But there's also a sign of your salvation. As you encounter that opposition, there is an assurance that you're one of God's saved people. Mm-hmm. That's an evidence of that, that reality in your life. There's another reality, there's another reason not to be alarmed. And uh, this is the next part, the next verse. Yeah, it says that we have been granted, what has been granted to us is faith and suffering. So that word for granted is like this graciously given. So suffering has been granted to us, yeah. been given to us. Just in the same way that faith is a gift to us, it's saying suffering has been granted to us. That sounds funny to most of us, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the enemy wants to use this suffering to destroy our faith, but for the true Christian, it can actually strengthen our faith. You know, um, 
I was just reflecting on how can suffering, how can hardships be a gift? And, and this is just what came to mind, uh, that, that suffering or hardships can draw us near to Christ, that we would know his nearness and commune with him in a, in a way that we may never have been able to apart from that affliction. Uh, sometimes afflictions have a way of, of giving us a hunger for the word and a desire to pray and be alone with the Lord. We see this in Paul when in chapter 3 he says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, that he wants to know more and more of Christ. And then finally, uh, suffering can magnify Christ in a way no other season of life will. You know, the world is not going to see the, the, the beauty of Christ uh, when we you know, say God is good and all the, the good seasons. But when things are not going well and we can praise the Lord through that, they're going to see something that's going to shine brighter than, um, than just praising the Lord in the good times. So this, this suffering, it, it, we're not to be alarmed because let's just add this up here again. Let's review this because it shows a sign um, that unbelievers have a need for Christ mm-hmm. It's a sign of your salvation in Christ when you face that kind of suffering. And the other benefit that you just said, Lauren, is it, it brings a deeper communion with Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add a fourth one here. It's actually the one that Paul gives us in verse 30. And this is that we have um, a sense that we're not alone, mm-hmm. that there's others who have gone before us. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me read verse 30. Paul says, when you suffer this way, that you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying, your suffering mm-hmm. links you with Paul, mm-hmm. identifies you with such a saint as Paul um, in his trials. And I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, there, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and it tells us to go on and run the race mm. and again be that be that athlete mm. but there's a cloud of witnesses mm. who have um, suffered mm-hmm. for Christ that we um, become a part of that group mm-hmm. what a what a beautiful thing mm-hmm. and so so verses 27 to 30 are all about facing external opposition and we need to be united to do so standing together struggling together and then Paul now takes us to chapter 2 and here now he shifts our unity. It's mm-hmm. still unity. Mm-hmm. But now the shift is toward our internal unity that we need to do, a, we need to do some work in overcoming our own divisions mm-hmm. within the church. And Paul is such an excellent coach. He, um, he leads with the motivations. Um, just like in sports, you need motivation. Mm-hmm. And that's what we get in verse uh, 1. I think verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul's giving us the X's and O's for our unity in the church. Let's look at these motivations. What do we have here? Yeah, so the first one he says is, so if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, you know, we we get to have union with Christ. Christ is everything. We get a real abiding relationship with him. And this is this should be an encouragement to us that he is with us through all life's trials, that we are forgiven, adopted, and our eternity is secured. You know, I think that one of the key tactics of the energy or, or the enemy for some of, some of us is discouragement. Um, if we take our eyes off Christ and the amazing benefits of this reality of our union with him, I think we will be discouraged and down and depressed. And that's why we are called to set our mind on things above and to reflect on this. 
So we have this incredible, like this encouragement in Christ. In fact, that word is paraklesis. It means coming near. Um, Christ left heaven to come mm. near to us. He gave us the Holy Spirit to be with us. And let's dwell on that. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean for our relationship in the church with other believers? Mm-hmm. If Christ could come alongside us like that and encourage us like that. Mm-hmm. The next one, Lauren, is comfort from love. Yeah, these are glorious realities. I wouldn't trade anything in the world for these realities. To have real comfort from Christ in times of need. You know, 2 Corinthians says that he comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others in their afflictions. You know, some wonder why they don't know more of the comfort of Christ. And I think the truth is that we don't experience his comfort if we run to other things for comfort. If we're running to our spouse or friends or food or alcohol or chocolate or control. You know, sometimes there are trials in our lives, which might be difficult marriages or difficult children or difficult jobs or friendships. And the Lord wants to use these trials to lead us near to him. So we have... So, so these are things that God has given us, encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love. These are available to us mm-hmm. every day. Thirdly, Paul mentions participation in the spirit. This is koinonia, it's fellowship. It's the idea that um, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, that we are brought together, united together to, you know, with the Lord, mm-hmm. um, but also with one another. And we are partners in the gospel by, mm-hmm. by the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this beautiful reality of the Spirit's presence in us, strengthening us, enabling us to obey, guiding us, help us to, helping us to understand the gospel, convicting us of sin, and making Jesus more precious to us. Um, there's a real reality of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit in us. And like you were saying, Brent, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, and it unites us to one another. So without the Spirit, we can't have either union There can be no true unity in the church unless it contains born-again Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. But we have these things. And then then fourthly, Paul says, uh, if you have any affection and sympathy um, from the Lord. Yeah. So this is getting at like how God cares for us. Definitely. Yeah. In other translations, it says any tenderness and compassion. And these verses are just so precious to me because they remind me of my own experience in coming to the Lord. You know, I had a lot of faults, and I I still do, but do you know what was so powerful to me when I became a Christian? It was to see how the Lord deals with me in my weakness. He was so tender toward me. He was so compassionate. His kindness truly did lead me to repentance. He was so gentle in how he would show me my sin, and I would urge you all to respond to the Lord in his gentle and kind nudges so that he will not have to shout to you in your pain. Scripture says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. If you feel bruised and battered, he is gentle and compassionate. He will hold you close to his heart. If you feel like a smoldering wick about to burn out with nothing left, he will not quench you. He will tenderly hold you. There is no wound or vulnerability that he doesn't understand or handle with the utmost care. So Paul is saying, if you have any of these things, and it's, it's kind of like implied, like we do have these things. We have uh, these motivations. We've been encouraged in Christ. We have the comfort from his love. We have participation in spirit, the affection and sympathy of the Lord. We, we've been resourced unbelievably. And because we have been, now therefore go and, and share and, and, and bless others and, you know, out of the resources that God has been blessing you. Mm-hmm. So now we come to the expressions of unity 
in verse 2. And so Paul, the first, yeah, so Paul says, have the same, uh, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Yeah, it starts off with mind, and we actually see it almost twice in the verse, but he says, set your mind on things that are above. It's this, it's almost this, like this spiritual mindedness for the Christians. And this is not a matter of having everyone see eye to eye on every subject. Uh, If we have encouragement and comfort from Christ, that'll overflow in our relationships. If we have the Holy Spirit with us, guiding us, our mind will be on things above. If we've known the tenderness and compassion of Jesus, that will overflow into our relationships. Uh, we will have a mind on things above, a heart that cares for others, and is united in one purpose. Our lives will be united to bring God glory, to live for his kingdom, and to live for his mission. So really, all of these, um, these realities are getting to the same idea of, of a deep, abiding, internal unity uh, within the church. Unity is the goal. And as Paul now goes on in verses 3 and 4, he gives us descriptions of how to achieve and practice and practice this. It's easy to say this, but how do mm-hmm. we how do we practice it in day to day life? And and I think that you know Paul uh, Paul first of all shows us um, we need to know what we're up against, mm-hmm. and he shows us that he, here's the daily enemy that we need to that mm-hmm. we need to know is true and real, mm-hmm. and we need to see it and we need to fight it. He says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I mean, those are the enemies in the mm. church. Those are the enemies in the heart. Uh, selfish ambition, conceit. We face this uh, really every minute of the, of the day. This is who we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, we can see the whole essence of sin in those two things, right? We see this selfishness, this self-love, this pride. You know, I've battled these all my life. I've always been an achiever, and these two enemies have been there. Uh, I've, I've lived for these things most of my life, seeking to be the best. You know, in athletics or academics, you name it. I lived for award ceremonies. I, and you know what? The world praises this. The world praises this selfish ambition and this self-glory. But you know what I found? You know, I won a lot of awards. I met a lot of goals. I got a lot of attention, and it was all very empty. And it was not worth it. It fractured relationships. This me-centered life was tragically unsatisfying. And I just found that if, uh, if I live for greatness in the world's eyes, it was just so empty. But to pursue greatness in God's eyes, which is so different, it just brings a joy that is, is hard, to even, to hard to even explain. But it's the self-exaltation that will destroy our unity in the church. And there's, there's a much better way, and that's in the next verses. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about it, it destroying things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, we think of James chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be, there will be disorder, and there will be every vile practice. Mm-hmm. The results are, are not good in mm-hmm. our lives, at home, or in the church, when selfishness um, rules the day, we can expect very, very poor results. You know, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, in fact, I was studying these verses in our home in one morning, and uh, I, I was just struck by how practical this is. And so I was studying, and what happened was, you know, my ki- our kids were in the room, mm-hmm. and they were supposed to be playing together, but they ended up fighting against each other. And uh, they couldn't agree on what they were going to play, and it was just getting out of hand and you know talk about it ending up in disorder it was just 
you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you can imagine. And, and every bad practice. And I thought to myself, wow, here's jealousy, here's selfish ambition, <laughs> like just ruling, just showing itself. And, um, but now I want to be fair and I want to say that um, this was also very convicting for me because it was a few minutes later that all that settled down and, then, and the kids were playing great together and they were having a wonderful time. And now the shouts were shouts of joy. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? I'm sitting there, I'm doing my, trying to do my study, and now I'm frustrated. I'm kind of internally upset. I'm going, why can't they keep it down? What, what is their problem? I mean, and I realized, you know, now it's all about me. <laughs> and as we come to verse um, 3, Paul now shows us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But, here it is, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Um, they, you know, we were, none of us were at first counting each other more significant. Counting is to calculate, add up the needs of the other person, subtract your own personal interests and see the result. And he says also, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, look you know, mm-hmm. keep an eye out, look around, be alert for what is needed for the other person. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder how much work that we all have to do with that, uh, to, to count others more important, to look for the needs of others. Um, I, think, I think on the whole as a church, we have a lot of work to, to do. With, well, there's a lot of greatness as well. A lot of people are doing that. But, you know, we live in a selfie age. Hmm. We live in an age where people are posting about themselves. Hmm. And they're not maybe stopping to, I mean, do we really ask questions? Hmm. Do we really listen to people? Um, or are we, are we not? And so what Paul's really getting at is humility. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. Which brings us to first Peter five, five, where it talks about God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble. And this, this verse is just such a motivation for me in my own life. You know, I so desire more of the encouragement from Christ and the comfort from his love that we just read about earlier. And it says that he actively opposes the proud, which is great incentive for me to examine my own heart and to look for that root of pride creeping in, which Jonathan Edwards said it's the most hidden and secret and deceitful of all sins. Pride. Is pride, yeah. It's in a category all on its own. Uh, All other sins lead us away from God, but pride seeks to be above God. And how can he not oppose us if we have set ourselves up to oppose him? But the beautiful part of this passage is not the warning. We need that to examine ourselves, but it's the promise here. It says he will give grace to the humble. He will strengthen. He will support. He will comfort and protect and help the one who has a posture of dependence on him. Um, so there's great encouragement to, for me to really pursue that humility, to, to look to Christ and to, to grow in that way. Yeah, that's what that's what we want, isn't it? Is God's grace, hmm. uh, His comfort, His blessing, His strength in our lives, mm-hmm. uh, and the Lord wants to give it to us. And so, um, you know, it strikes me how everything in our Christian lives is designed to produce greater humility in us. I read this in a book this last week that that you know when, when we read the Bible, we come face to face with our sin and we see our our need for humility and to mm. be sanctified and changed by the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, the cross itself tells us that all that we bring to our own salvation is our own sin. Uh, when we pray, prayer puts us on our knees before the Lord 
and we come with empty hands before mm. the Lord, uh, when we come to worship, it's causing us to look up, get our focus mm. in its right place. Uh, even tri- even trials, mm. when we are going through those hard times, they remind us of our frailty and how dependent we are on the Lord. And yet we, you know, in all of this, we still want to exalt ourselves. This really is a battle that mm. we're fighting. And we need Paul's words in our hearts mm. to take root and mm-hmm. to find a home. You know, the early church, they turned the world upside down. Uh, how did they do it, though? They obeyed a different king. They lived lives that reflected the values of the kingdom. They lived lives that were worthy of the gospel. Lives that involved standing and striving together against opposition and serving one another with humble compassion. I think we want that to be our prayer today. We need God's grace, his blessing. We want to see the gospel advance. So let's go and do likewise with dependence on the Lord. Let's close in prayer together. Father, we thank you today that it is the gospel that has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this great citizenship, this great privilege that we have. And so we want to pray that you would help us now to live lives that are worthy of this. And we pray that you would unite our hearts and our minds, that we would strive and stand together toward the goal of winning the lost. And Lord, um, we pray that we would uh, even embrace suffering for the sake of Christ and not be alarmed. We pray that you would help us to know the Lord better and love others humbly and selflessly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.